Listener discretion is advised. The legend of a werewolf is a fascinating one. I think I've watched every movie in the bucket that involves them. From classic movies like Frankenstein and the Wolfman, Werewolf of London, to the best decade, the 80s, The Howling, Silver Bullet, which is one of my favorite movies with Corey Haim and Gary Busey, Underworld and more, they all grab my imagination to wonder. Are werewolves real? Keep your lights on for this episode, cabin crew. Keep a watch out your window as we explore the mysteries of werewolves. This is Farah, and you're listening to The Conversation Cabin. Werewolves. People who are known to morph into hideous creatures. They have a vicious thirst to kill and leave a trail of blood, destruction, or death in their wake. We don't exactly know when werewolves entered the scene in legends, but the earliest example of a man transforming into a wolf is from 2100 BC in the Epic of Gilgamesh where he turns down a woman's advances because the woman had previously turned her lover into a wolf. Then in Greek mythology, the legend of Lycan, it is said that the son of Pelasgus served Zeus, a meal made from the remains of a sacrificed boy. Enraged, Zeus turned Lycan and his sons into wolves. In Nordic tales, the saga of the Valesungs, there's a story of a boy and his father who came upon some wolf pelts and found that the pelts had the power to turn people into wolves for 10 days. The father and son donned the pelts, morphed into wolves, tearing through the forest, killing anything they came across, but their murderous rampage ended when the father attacked his own son, giving him a wound that was lethal, but in flew a raven that gave the father a leaf that had healing powers, and the boy in the end survived. But there are some terrifying stories out there. There's one story of two men in 1521, Frenchmen, Pierre Bourgault and Michel Verdun, who swore their allegiance to the devil and went on a serial killer rampage murdering several young children. They claimed that they had a special ointment that turned them both into werewolves and that it was the wolf part that killed the children, but in the end their claim wasn't bought and they were both burned at the stake for their crimes. Interestingly enough, back in those days, burning was a said way to kill werewolves. So, 
Did the court and townspeople somewhat believe their story? Apparently, this ointment was popular because another 16th century Frenchman, Giles Garnier, otherwise known as the werewolf of Dole, claimed that he was able to transform into a wolf by the ointment. And it was the wolf in him that went on a fiend of killing and eating children. Garnier was strapped to a stake and burned for his torment on the town. We ask, did these three killers have a demented mind? Were they mentally ill when they were under the influence of this ointment? This substance, or were they criminals of society? Killers that just simply killed. Superstitious Europeans thought that such heinous crimes could only be committed by a terrifying beast such as a werewolf. But now we move on to the most notorious wolf-like beast of them all, that of the Bedberg werewolf. In the 15th century, a wealthy farmer, Peter Stump or Stubb, was known to his community of Bedberg, Germany as a cordial man, a widower, a wonderful father to his two adolescent children. But underneath his human skin, darkness was lying in wait. That is, when he donned the skin of a wolf. The town was already clashing with different faiths. The Black Plague had seeped into the small religious town, convincing its citizens that the devil had its dark shawl covering the community and everyone was looking over their shoulder for evil. For a few years, farmers were investigating the strange deaths of many of their cattle. The cattle were savagely torn open as if some animal was having its fun slashing its way through the farmer's pastures. Then the mysterious disappearances of children from their farms and homes, women vanishing from their walking trails, some found deceased, mutilated in atrocious ways. Under their breaths, people were whispering that these unexplained cattle mutilations and murders of humans could only be blamed on one thing, a werewolf, and it was lurking amongst their town, peeking from the forest. But Peter didn't morph into a werewolf per se. He would cloak himself with wolf skin, and it gave him a sense of power, hunger to seek out his victims. At his trial, Peter told the story of when he was 12 years young, when the devil himself handed a wolf fur belt, and when he put it on, he transformed into the quote, the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf strong and mighty, with eyes great and large within the night, sparkled like brands of fire, a great mouth and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws." End quote. And when the belt was off, he was back to his human self, just a farmer, just a father. Peter confessed to the death of 13 children two pregnant women, and countless number of livestock. And I will tell you, 
what the victims went through was absolutely unimaginable. With the woman that were expecting, he ripped their fetuses from their wombs and, quote, ate their hearts panting hot and raw. He later described them as, quote, dainty morsels. The young women were sexually assaulted before he ripped them to shreds. Young children were strangled, bludgeoned, and their throats savagely ripped open by Peter's bare hands. Some of the children were even disemboweled and partially eaten. Calves and lambs were torn apart and eaten raw as well. He also confessed about a triple murder when he saw two men and a woman taking a stroll outside of the city limits, Peter said he crouched down, shielding himself in some brush. He called out to one of the men, as he knew him by name, asking for help with some lumber. And when the man met him in the cover of darkness, he bashed his head in. After a few minutes when the first man didn't return, the second man went to search for him and was also killed. Sensing that she might be in some type of danger, the woman fled, running as fast as she could. But Peter caught up with her and the woman was never to be seen or heard from again. Her body was never found, as many thought that Peter not only raped and killed her, he may have devoured her entire body. The two men's bodies were found, beaten and battered. One known child managed to escape the grips of Peter. The little girl was playing with some friends among the cattle, when all of a sudden, Peter grabbed her by the neck, sending the other children away, screaming. Stubb tried to rip the girl's throat out, but her stiff, high collar was her godsend that day, because it protected her neck from Peter's fingers and when she screamed, it sent the cows into a frenzy to protect their own babies, so they charged at him. He undid his grip on the girl and fled the scene. Behind closed doors, Peter lived a jaw-dropping life, impregnating both his sister and his own daughter. He also led his firstborn son into the woods, killing him and devouring his brains. There could be no other explanation for these gruesome, heinous crimes than they had to be committed by a monster, a beast. With limbs of victims found scattered across the fields, the men of the town form a posse to capture the so-called monster. For days they scoured the forest, the hills, the lands, until at last their dogs picked up a scent. And finally, they came upon a wolf, cornering it. Once the hunters reached the area, though, to their amazement, there stood a man, the man they knew as Peter. The recount of one of the hunters, George Bohr, said that he witnessed Peter remove a belt and shapeshift from the creature into his human form right in front of his eyes. Although no belt was ever found, we wonder, what did George really see? 
Why would he make up such a story as a wolf transforming to a man when his townspeople were experiencing such unbelievable tragedy and loss? You would want someone to blame for these murders. Disbelieving their own eyes, the hunters were convinced that Peter was a werewolf, but still, in the back of their minds, was this some kind of evil trick? How could the Peter that they knew, the friendly father, who waved to everyone he saw be this monster that killed and ate their people? It just couldn't be. The hunters dragged Peter back to town and a trial was organized. Under torture, he confessed to all of the killings, even the story of the devil giving him a magic belt. But researchers of this case believe that Peter was a victim himself of superstition and religious rivalry and that he was innocent of the crimes that his confession was coerced from the torture that he suffered peter was convicted of his crimes on october 28 1589 and his execution was as grisly as the crimes that were committed it is written that his body was strapped spread eagle on a large will with red hot pincers. The executioners pulled off flesh in 10 different places on his body. His arms and legs were broken with an ax and his head was cut clean off. On October 31st, the day we call Halloween, Peter's body along with his daughter and mistress, who were also both convicted of abetting his crimes, were burned at the stake. The wheel that Stubbs' body was tortured on was displayed in the town for all to see as a warning for what will happen if you, too, commit crimes of sin. The wheel was set high on a pole from which hung 16-yard-long strips of wood to represent the 16 victims, and set atop of that all was a framed likeness of a wolf and perched at the point was Peter's severed head. So we'd cover some cases where people have claimed that either by ointment or magic belts, they've succumbed to the dark by transforming into a monster, but let's bring in a medical aspect. That be in the case of Peter the Wild Boy. In the year 1725, Peter was found naked wandering a forest on all fours. People thought he was a werewolf, or at least was said to be a part of a pact, raised by wolves. He would eat only with his hands and couldn't speak, only grunt and make wolf-like sounds. Eventually, he was adopted by the courts, King George I and II, living out the rest of his life as their pet. The term lycanthropy is a mental disorder in which the patient believes that they are a wolf or some other non-human animal. You can see in history that this term is brought up several times in both the superstitious way and in a psychiatric disorder sense. But with all of the stories combined, it is rarely that the cases lead to a psychological disturbance. In recent years, people are experiencing disturbing encounters with a wolf human-like creature known as a wolfman, dogman, 
Sightings date back to the start of the 20th century from Virginia, Michigan, Wisconsin to Minnesota. In 1936, around Racine, Wisconsin, on the western coast of Lake Michigan, a night security guard by the name of Mark encountered a canine-looking black-furred creature with long, sharp claws smelling of carnage. Crouched down, clawing at an indigenous burial ground, but fled when Mark approached to take a closer peek. When he returned the next day, he found footprints and claw marks, furthering his notion that he saw something humanoid, but with the characteristics of a dog. Mark returned the next night for his shift and once again encountered the cryptid, clawing at the mound. This time, the creature didn't run away. It stood up on two legs ranging six to seven feet tall, looking right through Mark, and to his horror, it spoke. The word that came out of the beast's mouth was Gadara. Mark stood his ground silently praying to God, turning around slowly and walked away, but in his ear, he heard the creature snarl. Mark never saw the cryptid again, but occasionally smelled a decayed meat odor. I looked up the word Gadara, and interestingly enough, Gadara is the city in which the Bible states this is where Jesus casted demons out of a man and into a herd of swine, which then threw themselves into the sea. Was this some type of ancient demon that found its way to the States? Because around 25 years later in 1961, a dogman was actually caught in a photograph and it was standing upright trying to hide behind a light pole. Around three in the morning in Big Rapids, Michigan, a gentleman who also worked as a security guard at a plant which was actually located across the street from his own house and backed up to the Haymarch State Gainlands wasn't able to sleep one night. He heard the sounds of the chain link fence that surrounded the property, so he went to investigate. He thought he saw something, so he grabbed his gun and returned outside to not see an intruder, but to see a six foot tall, upright canine looking beast shuffling about his driveway. The man rushed back into his house, grabbed a camera, and when he came back out, the dogman was further out by the street, behind a street light, just standing there. The man was able to snap a few pictures, one of which I will post on my Instagram, and it's a truly captivating picture. Now we move on to our next beast, infamously known as the Beast of Bray Road. This creature is known to terrorize the fields of Wisconsin. There is a haunting story that I came across in Seth Breedlove's documentary, American Werewolves, which I highly recommend you watch, and it's available to rent or buy on Amazon Prime. They interviewed a man named Shane where in August 1985, there was a friend of the family that invited him to join a fitness program, a running program of sorts. 
So already a high school athlete, Shane agreed. I mean, what better way to keep in shape, he thought. The plan was for him to run five miles in the evening. Shane lived off of State Route 4, and the only area to run would be this little side road just south of his house called Temple Road. If memory serves him correctly, he was going to start running around 8, but procrastinating as he did, he didn't head out until after dark, which didn't bother him at all since he was familiar with the area. Living in the country, he didn't mind running after dark. It was a clear night out, a perfect night for running, he thought. A little after 9, Shane starts down Temple Road. He's on the north side, the right-hand side of the road, where there are corn stalks, and on the left side, the south side of the road, there were all beans. And this went on for at least a mile. He made it down State Route 19, and when he was on his way back, as he approached Flickinger Road, which meant he had one mile to go, he got a weird feeling. You know that feeling the feeling that you know something is off, something's wrong, someone's watching you. And he felt like it was coming from the woods. So he stops, he looks into the woods, peering. He didn't see anything, nor did he hear anything. As he was about to start running again, he looked in the cornfield and the corn stalks started moving rustling he said that whatever it was it was really big because a lot of the corn was moving and then all of a sudden it stopped he thought wow that was strange so he decides to take off running again and when he did whatever was in the corn takes off running too that's what really startled Shane, because as the country boy that he was, he knew that was not a characteristics of deer. When deer get startled, they take off running away from you. And whatever this was through the corn stalks was running with him, pacing him. This freaked out Shane, so he stopped again and again. It stopped. To this day... He thinks whatever it was had to be at least three rows of corn stalks in. So he remembers thinking, how does it know that I stopped? So he stood there staring into the corn stalks, trying to blink his eyes hard to clear any fogginess from his sight and not a single stalk moved. Not a twitch of a leaf. This thing Whatever it could be, was just perfectly still, silent. Shane doesn't remember how long he stood there, but it spooked him. Not knowing what it was, he started to run off. And again, this thing took off with him, simultaneously. It's pacing him. Shane starts running faster. It starts running faster. He realizes that whatever is running through the corn is stalking him. As he gets to Route 4, it occurs to him that he has to turn left to go home. 
and assuming that this thing stays in the corn, when he turns left, he's going to run right into it. One of Shane's best friends who lived down the road from him lived to the right. So Shane's thought was, okay, I'm not going to turn left to go home because I don't know what this thing is and I don't want to intersect with it. So he made up his mind to stay on the road and when the left and right comes up, he will cut right and run to his friend's house. Shane is running fast, but he then remembers that the corn is going to run out at a certain point before he gets to the crossing and he could potentially see this thing. So he gets prepared, telling himself, don't look, just run, keep going, do not look. Part of him thought that if he looked, he would freeze up and he didn't want to be in the clear view of the stalker. Shane gets to the end of the corn and he couldn't help himself and looked. As he is running, he turns the top of his body to the left side shuffling and that is when he saw it this thing emerges from the corn and it was about six feet tall and he knew this because it's how tall the corn stalks were it had the head of a dog high pointed ears and its shoulders were rolled like a person with terrible posture its arms were long and he remembers it turning its head, just looking at him. Shane saw its head, ears, but he couldn't tell you what color his fur was. It could have been dark gray, black, it could have been dark brown. He couldn't say for sure, but the interesting thing is, when he saw it, he didn't immediately think of werewolf because his frame of reference of what a werewolf was, was something that he's seen on TV. A man with a flat face wearing worn, torn, and tattered clothes. It didn't look like what he saw. The only frame of reference of what he saw is that it looked like the Egyptian god Anubis. That's the best way that he could describe it. Shane is a credible man. He's a little older now, and the way he told his story, it's like it was yesterday. Another eerie story is that of Ron. On May 6, 2006 in Lansing, Michigan, Ron had gone to the store to pick up a few items and was on his way back to his girlfriend's house. She lived out in the country, so the only way to get to the store and back was to travel down various backcountry roads that were surrounded by fields. As Ron was driving, he noticed something moving to the right of the road atop a small hill, so he slowly stopped. To his terror, a humanoid hand larger than an average human hand creeped out of the darkness reaching over the edge of the hill and then a huge shadow of a silhouette breached the night. It had a wolf-like face, eyes that reflected from the headlights, the stature larger than a man. It looked across to the other side of the field and then hauntingly calm, it cocked its head. 
and looked directly at Ron. Frozen in absolute fear, the creature and Ron locked eyes for at least 20 seconds. Then it started to step down the hill. And that's when Ron snapped out of his trance, put his foot on the gas and took off. Once he got to the stop sign, Ron peered into his rear view mirror and the creature was now sitting in the middle of the road, staring right at Ron's car. He stepped on the gas again, still looking up into his mirror, saw the beast move to the other side of the field. Frantically, Ron reached his girlfriend's house, ran in, told her what he saw, and they both got back in the car, speeding again through the dark backcountry roads. But once they get to the part where he saw this creature, there was no sight of anything around. Many of us love the lores and legends of werewolves, but are they really just a legend? From back in the early ages where normal men walked through their cities during the day, seemingly personable, reputable, as you and I, but then commit such heinous crimes by night as rape, murder, and cannibalism that they can only be classified as done by a beast, a monster, to the recorded sightings by average everyday people with no mental illness, no financial gain, hardworking, describing a wolf-like, dog-like, humanoid creature that they encountered and can describe in detail even to this day. I believe that every tale comes from a slice of truth, but when you go outside at night, to enjoy some fresh air, looking up at the clear star-filled sky, listening to the insects singing their nightly tunes, and then all of a sudden, the songs become silent, and you hear something rustling in the bushes, shuffling in the woods. You feel something watching you. You feel the hair raise on the back of your neck. You don't want to look, but you have to. You squint just a little bit, and you see a figure with eyes peering back at you. Remember to keep your door open so you can rush inside fast if anything charges you. Today's quote is by Warner Oland. The werewolf is neither man nor wolf, but a satanic creature with the worst qualities of both. All right, cabin crew, thank you so much for joining me for tonight's episode. I hope you enjoyed the scary tale. I wanted to give a shout out to some of my new followers and listeners, Horror's Edge Podcast, Cryptid Warfare Podcast, Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. Please go check all of them out. They have some great episodes. Also, Astute Paranormal Group, 
where the weird ones are. And my friends, Brandy and Kim, I thank you all for your support, your listen. You're all the best. Also, I'm so excited to announce the Paranormal Project. Ooh, this is going to be so good. So it's a collaborative live series with some of my favorite podcasters in the game. Hauntcast, Mrs. Spooky, Obsessed Podcast, and One Nothing Podcast. Join all of us live for the first episode of a four-part series. It's all about the mysteries of the Uinta Basin. We will be diving into the fascinating lore of skinwalkers. Oh my God, I don't know about you, but I'm a super fanatic when it comes to skinwalkers, but also UFOs, along with the strange connections between Skinwalker Ranch, Blind Frog Ranch, and Stardust Ranch. And I know you all have heard at least one of them. But uh, definitely tune in. The first episode will be live, as I said, Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Central Time and uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, of course. Now, if you do happen to miss it, don't fret. You know, it'll be up on my podcast, of course, but for... Um, you know, Hans Cast, Miss, you know, Mrs. Spooky Obsess, One Nothing. They're going to have it on their respective channels like a day or two after. So no fret. Um, and also remember if there's a subject that you'd like me to cover, email me at theconversationcabin at gmail.com. Or if you have a scary experience, come on, come on, let's share. Um, you, you can be anonymous. You don't have to be on the show. Nothing like that if you don't want to. Just type it up in an email what your experience was. I would love to read it on the air. Um, but other than that, until next time, Cabin Crew, explore your strength.